Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. This podcast is brought to you by Coors Light. Coors Light's the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you need to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Celebrate responsibly. Stay with us, folks. 3-3 at the end of the second OT. We're headed to the kicks from the penalty spot. November 6, 2004. RFK Stadium, Washington, D.C. It's still regarded as one of the greatest club games in American soccer history. With a spot in the MLS Cup final on the line, DC United and the New England Revolution played a thrilling, at times nasty, 3-3 game that headed to penalty kicks. Freddie Adu had been under pressure from the moment he stepped onto the soccer field that year. He was the youngest American pro team sport athlete in a century. He was earning more money than any of his teammates. But all that came off the field. Now his team was in an epic battle for survival. Penalty kicks, like free throws, have almost nothing to do with physical skills. In a city park on a summer day, most semi-athletic people could poke the ball 12 yards past a goalkeeper. But as a method of deciding a do-or-die game in a raucous stadium, penalties are without a doubt sport's most diabolical invention. Two players had already failed to convert their spot kicks when Adu lined up for his turn in round three. The 15-year-old rookie, Freddie Adu. Welcome to American Prodigy. I'm Grant Wall. I had been following this DC United Cup run from Argentina, where I was on vacation at the time. The fact that there even was coverage in Argentina showed that Freddie, DC United, and MLS were making an impact. But soon enough, there would be storm clouds on the horizon for the relationship between Freddie's inner circle, DC United, and MLS. But the night Freddie scored that penalty, a night where stars like New England's Clint Dempsey had failed to do so, the skies were clear and Freddie had every reason to smile. So he did. It was a great moment for me because not only did I step up and make it, but the trust that my teammates and my coaches placed in me to go up there and take that PK in such a pivotal game. And not only did I step up, I stepped up and I buried that PK. That was huge for my confidence as well. Freddie may have gotten a confidence boost from nailing a must-have penalty, but ask anybody in the DC United locker room or in the throngs of media who interviewed him, the kid was already brimming with charisma. Teammate Mike Pecky could see it in his smile. What I remember back there is his big smile, him getting out in the field, him doing his little tricks, him coming to practice, being driven in a BMW 7 Series and saying, oh, that's mine, but I can't drive yet. Him rolling in with a Rolex, you know, oh, I got this for free. All the expectations he had on him, the Pele commercial, the, the, the endorsements, and the headlines of the savior of U.S. soccer is here and the next greatest player. My memory of his is the smile. 
a lot of times, Freddie could count on his charisma to make up for his lack of experience and respect. Remember when Aleko Eskandarian was angry that Freddie wanted his jersey number before the season? When they met for the first time in person on the team bus, it was Freddie's smile that smoothed things over. From that moment on, I had a lot of respect for him coming, addressing the situation, kind of the elf in the room right off the bat with a huge smile on his face. And I feel like I'm pretty easy to get along with as well. So from that moment on, I was like, okay, I could talk to this guy about, about anything and be honest. And uh, yeah, we hit it off from there. It helped that Eskandarian was the team's youngest player after Adu. They became good friends, good enough that Aleko helped set Freddie up with a different type of American prodigy, teen pop superstar JoJo. In 2004, JoJo released her debut album, and the single Leave Get Out was a mega hit. Eski always had a handle on the zeitgeist. A few years later, he'd go on a reality show date with Kim Kardashian, but here he decided to play matchmaker. Yeah, we're in the locker room, and MTV was on, and JoJo came on. She was, like, doing something or presenting something. I'm like, what about her, man? This is, like, she's cute. Talk to this girl. He's like, all right, all right. Like, we'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. And then it was like a month later or a few weeks later, and he's like, guess what? I got invited to, I think, like an MTV thing, and I'm supposed to present something with JoJo. And I'm like, dude, this is your chance. Like, go for it. He went and he kind of spit some game and, and talked to her. From that point on, Freddie and JoJo were a couple. The phenom's smile came through for him again, Freddie called his friend that night from the MTV Awards to tell him the good news and give credit where credit was due. Esky was like, hey, man, she's like your age, man. You should date her, man. Like, what you doing right now? He was, I think he was just kind of joking around and it just kind of happened. It just, so he could take the credit. That's fine. He did say it. The relationship gave Freddie the rare opportunity to just be a normal teenager. Well, at least as normal as teen superstars can be. Sometimes the chaperone for their dates was Carrie Goldberg Trutanich. It was a long distance relationship, but they definitely tried to be a regular teenage relationship. But when MTV is doing episodes on you guys and we're filming in MTV Cribs and JoJo is actually calling on the phone, it's sort of funny. Like, and I remember just sitting there shaking my head. I'm like, well, this is real life. It was nice to see that part of Freddie actually be a teenager and have like the teenage romance and angst of that. And one of the nice things was they got, they both got it. Like she was going through her own initial rise in music as a young girl and he through soccer. So I think they understood each other. Freddie also leaned on Carrie for advice on girls. Surrounded by trainers, coaches, and teammates, being a professional athlete means you're almost constantly around men. Nearly all the people I could find who played a role in Freddie's career or surrounded Freddie's life, with the exception of Arnold Tarzi's wife, Mindy, and his own mother, were men. Just listen to this podcast. It's a lot of dudes. But back then, Freddie needed someone who wasn't a guy, who wasn't his mom, to talk to about girls. I think I was able to relate to him and bring a different sensibility like he's talking about girls and he's saying it to me and not necessarily saying it to his teammates 
he's going to get a different perspective from a bunch of guys than when he's telling me. So I hope I had a good influence. I'm glad I got to be at least a part of that too, because he saw that I didn't stop. He could call and I answered no matter what time of day it was, whether it was about soccer or marketing or him talking again about girls and just him being a teenage boy. It didn't matter if it was a girl he was trying to charm or soccer superstar Pelé. Everyone seemed to remember Freddie's smile. He'll happily do things with a smile. Always had a smile on his face, a Magic Johnson kind of smile. Got a smile at the end. You know, that smile and that exuberance. Freddie's smile was a symbol. Sure, it helped him win endorsements, but it was real too. A response to the pure joy he had playing a simple game, doing fun things with the ball. Yes, Freddie had to carry the weight of expectations for the league and for American soccer, but he did it with a grin. So he always seemed like he was handling everything well. That's what Alexi Lawless thought. He was really good at when he answered questions and talked about his situation in, it wasn't necessarily rehearsed, but I never got the feeling that he still wasn't a teenager. There was a maturity in the things that he said, but it was always with a youthful exuberance that was good because I, I didn't want him to be at that young age talking like he was 25 or talking like he was 35. That just wouldn't wouldn't work. But there was, without a doubt, something special in who he was as a player on the field and who he was as a person off the field. Even the first time I interviewed Freddie when he was 13, his charisma reminded me of LeBron James's when I interviewed him as a teenager. And you've heard a do in this podcast. He still has that personality, still makes you smile. He was and is a natural. But Freddie is also human too. The challenge back in 2004 was that when he turned pro, the demands of the job and the added attention meant Freddie had to turn on his smile on a massive scale. His veteran teammate, Ernie Stewart, couldn't help but notice and wince. We played away against Colorado, and after the game where we pulled out with the bus, there was, uh, Freddie had a signing session after the game. It was amazing the amount of people that were there to sign. I'm pretty sure he was there for hours. And this line was insane, uh, to tell you the truth. I felt bad for him. Uh, I want to say we left the stadium at, what, 10.30. So we're talking about a 14-year-old kid, huh? It's 10.30 in the evening and he's still signing autographs somewhere. There was a delicate balance for Freddie between loving the attention that being a soccer prodigy had thrust upon him and being smothered by it. Ivan Gazidis, then MLS's deputy commissioner, believed as the season progressed, the league may have tipped the balance too far in one direction. It was impossible to have the feeling uh, that this was a kid that was struggling with this because he so obviously wasn't. You know, he was incredibly mature, incredibly relaxed, outgoing, happy, young kid. I still have regrets, uh, absolutely, of pushing too hard. But at the same time, they had a feeling that we were in the presence of somebody as a person who was really extraordinary. But here's the thing. Freddie's charismatic personality was just one of many on the 2004 DC United squad. Not every MLS team was like that, especially in those days. In some locker rooms, a vibe constantly on edge would be a recipe for disaster. But this United team cranked up the aggro, even in practice, and it worked. Here's midfielder Ben Olsen. 
there were just personalities all over the place. Dima Kovalenko had his own style of, of personality. Ernie Stewart called Ernie the judge. If there were any discrepancies in the locker room, you went to Ernie. Mike Pecky, leader. He had a Brandon Perdo. Christian Gomez had his own personality. Aleko, another guy that spoke his mind. And then you had Peter, who had a big personality as well. And it was why we were successful, but it was why we were also volatile. But this wasn't a situation like the 1970s Boston Red Sox, who had 25 guys taking 25 taxi cabs home at the end of a road trip. It was more like a band of brothers who just ended up fighting a lot. No player in the league was more feared than hardman Dima Kovalenko. And Aleko Eskandarian remembers some crazy moments with Dima in those days. We had plenty of altercations in training as well, just, just through competitive nature. And then like being best of friends 10 minutes later. Like me personally too. Like Dima was one of my best friends on the team. I probably fought Dima 10 times that season. And then we'd go to lunch together and like play ping pong for hours like in the locker room. Freddie had a big personality too, steeped in the teenage banter that his IMG crew in Florida had indulged in with friends like Jamie Watson. We used to make fun of each other for everything though. We didn't hold back on each other, by the way. Some of it was pretty ruthless. You, you better have had thick skin and you better have been able to deflect a joke to another person because if you couldn't handle it, you better just walk away from the group. But Freddie had never had teammates this much older than him before. Players like 30-year-old Jaime Moreno, one of the best players in league history, didn't always find his teen antics charming. There was a time where Jaime wanted to literally kill him because Freddie, they're kind of going back and forth. And Freddie, uh, for the life of me, I don't know why you'd say this. Freddie's like, Jaime's just mad at me because I'm his daughter's favorite player. And I was like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. I'm like, you did not just say that to like the best player on our team. And Jaime was like, <laughs> I mean, steam coming out of his ears, you know, of like, what did you say? What did you say? And Freddie would run away and like hide behind me. And I'm like, dude, I don't support this. And, and Jaime, it was awkward for Jaime because he's like, if you were a grown adult, like we are having a fist fight right now. But since you're a minor, I can't even like touch you. And Freddie would like giggle and like run away. So I would then pull, you know, Freddie aside and be like, Freddie, you can't, you can't say that. You can't talk like that. He said, no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. And then he would like 20 minutes later be like, Jaime, you know, I'm joking. You know, I'm joking. And you're just like... It was cute, like a sitcom, but locker rooms have rules. And sometimes it was up to Ernie Stewart to lay down the law. I do think the first time he came in with a little bit of swagger in the, in the beginning, but you know, in a locker room that's set straight pretty quickly. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nothing but nonstop hustle and bustle all the time. And all of us could stand to hit that reset button now and again. And when you do, make sure you do it with a nice cold Coors Light. Mountain cold refreshments straight from the Rockies. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's literally made to chill. So next time you're able to sit at a baseball stadium, if the sun's hot, and that vendor walks by, say, sir, I'd like a nice cold Coors Light. Coors Light's the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you need to hit that reset button, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. 
Coors Brewing Company in Golden, Colorado. Celebrate responsibly. Guys, getting older isn't always fun, but it could be. And Roman is here to help. With Roman, you can get a free online evaluation for erectile dysfunction and hair loss, all from the comfort and privacy of your own home. A U.S. licensed healthcare professional will work with you to find the best treatment plan. If medication is appropriate, it ships to you free with two-day shipping. The whole process is straightforward and discreet, so complete an online visit today to connect with a doctor and take care of it. Go to GetRoman.com slash Prodigy now to get $15 off your first month. That's GetRoman.com slash Prodigy. Get started now to save $15 on your first month of treatment. DC United was running out of time to get itself right on the field. At the halfway point of the season, the team was standing at below 500. And so, in late August, the team changed things up, took a break, and was invited to billionaire owner Phil Anschutz's sprawling ranch in the Colorado wilderness for a long weekend. It was a perfect excuse to get away from Freddie Mania, do some team bonding, and refocus the season. City kid Aleko Eskandarian loved being outside as much as getting away. I believe there was like no cell phone service or anything. So it was just one of those where you're out in the middle of nowhere, you're with nature, you're doing horseback riding and fishing, and you're seeing these like wooden lodges and cabins. And I personally, being from Jersey, had never experienced anything like that. Like, I think we just all used it as a time to get together. Obviously, with the older guys, there was certainly drinks flowing and things like that as well, because we had a few days off, we weren't training. In a grown-ups playground, DC United let loose. Freddie hung out with the team during the day, but as the evening fell and drinks were poured, he'd retire to his room. A bit too early for Mike Pecky's liking. We took it as a team camaraderie thing. Three days we didn't sleep, including Peter, including Kevin, including the coaches. Had a phenomenal job. But every night at around 11.30 at the latest, Freddie was nowhere to be seen. Uh, he was up in his bed sleeping. One night, uh, a couple of the guys went up and dragged him out of his bed, brought him downstairs, and we like put him through this interrogation. Now we're all we're all freaking drunk, you know. <laughs> He's rubbing his eyes. He just woke up um, and and just put him through this interrogation about whatever it was. Then we let him go back to sleep. But it, it was crazy to see that because you know it was a split second after a day and a half saying, "Wait a second, we have a 14 year old team. Where the hell is he?" Following the Colorado getaway, a string of ties came for the team showing they hadn't ironed out their problems on the field. Ben Olsen thought the team still hadn't yet bought into Coach Peter Novak's system. And to do that, they needed to embrace the volatility. We weren't necessarily clicking all the time with Peter and vice versa. And he would constantly push us to the limit and make us uncomfortable. He did believe in a certain amount of suffering in the training pitch and uh, creating an environment that was volatile. For our group, it probably was the right environment to push us to have success. And, uh, but it was a wild year. The season was slipping away while headstrong players remained at odds with their headstrong coach. Tensions between the two came to a head in September after a bad loss at Chicago, Novak's old team. Novak had had enough and called a team meeting in the locker room. And then we go to Chicago. And we lost 3-1. It was horrendous game. Like, they never show up. And I was so frustrated with this. The first meeting starts me asking them, why? What's the difference? You beat MLS defending champion San Jose with great players. And this thing starts 
coach, you know, we train, we, we this, we play three, five, two, this is not our system. And the young guys, Santino, Freddie, Aleko, they didn't know what, to, what, what is happening. We go outside and we literally, we play maybe one hour, just play the game. Right. And then we sat down on the field and then we discuss why I choose to play this way. What is the requirements to play this game? You know, what I expect from, from you? What do you expect from me? Just tell me. And Ryan said to me and said to Tommy, Peter, I think you're right. We are too good to lose this chance to win the championship. We're going to do whatever you ask us to. And they train really hard. After finally buying into Novak's system, DC United went 5-1 and one in its last six games to storm into the playoffs as the second seed in the East. Things were coming together, but Freddie was playing less and less. The team had acquired veteran Argentine midfielder Christian Gomez. Gomez would be a future league MVP, and with his arrival, Freddie saw his minutes per game drop from 51 to 37 during the playoff push. He had started five straight games before the loss to Chicago, but would only start two down the stretch. With his time on the field being restricted again, Freddie spoke regularly to his mental conditioning coach, Trevor Moad. Trevor was always there. Trevor knows my deepest, darkest secrets in the world. All right, that man, he was like a father figure along with Arnold at the time. And, and they were always there. Without him, I'm pretty sure it would have been much worse. I had some great people around me that helped me out a lot, and Trevor is right there front and center. Moad had been trying to make sure Freddie didn't let his frustration over not starting creep into his performance. Part of his process involved showing Freddie videos of himself, both in games and on the bench. My goal with Freddie and a lot of those guys was just to give them a, a general understanding of the influence that they would have on themselves psychologically and just some basic skills relative to their internal self-talk, external. But I spent a lot more time with Freddie. We filmed him a lot. The player would watch their body language uh, with no perspective to the game to evaluate their effort. Moad and Freddie had grown extremely close in Freddie's early years in Florida. And in 2004, MLS and Adu paid Moad to make semi-regular trips to D.C. to spend time with Freddie. But Moad didn't work for D.C. United intentions steadily built between him and the team's coaching staff, as well as with Kevin Payne, who ran United. Moad sensed that Payne thought he was steering Adu too far from the team concept. I knew he wasn't the president of my fan club. I remember having the conversation with somebody who said, do you work for the team or is your responsibility the player? And I said, the player. And he said, that gives you a different level of accountability your accountability to helping him. And if you believe you want to challenge the current narrative in support of that player, then there will be consequences relative to the organization, but you don't work for them. Moad wasn't just some part of Adu's entourage. Remember, he would go on to become renowned in the sports world for his work with NFL quarterback Russell Wilson and the University of Alabama football team. He was close to Olympic track champion Michael Johnson, as well as a host of NFL stars. But Kevin Payne felt Moad didn't get that soccer was a team sport where players had to defend as well as attack. Privately, one incident involving Moad, Adu, and United assistant coach Tommy Sohn left Payne particularly annoyed. 
Tommy spent so much time trying to convince Freddie to ignore all the noise, ignore all the praise, try to win the respect of his teammates by doing his job every day. Tommy was walking down a hallway after lunch and from a meeting room with the door partially closed, he could hear like on a computer, he could hear, you know, Freddie, I do goal, Freddie. And he, he looks in and there was a performance expert from IMG sitting there with Freddie. And all he's doing is showing him basically clip after clip after clip of him scoring goals against a bunch of youth soccer players. And it was exactly the opposite of what we were trying to get him to focus on, which was not him or, or, you know, his personal successes on the field, but trying to find his role within the team. By the end of the 2004 season, Adu's personal frustration was only beginning to fester. And so, too, was Moad's relationship with DC United Brass. But any of Freddie's inner angst was still hidden by his smile. That's what people saw when he arrived in Los Angeles for the MLS Cup final, the championship game. And yes, Freddie Adu, what better stage than MLS Cup for the young 15-year-old Freddie Adu to finally live up to the insane amount of hype that was placed on his young shoulders. Even if he wasn't expected to start the final, Freddie was still one of the biggest stories heading into the game. And Peter Novak didn't like some of the things he was hearing Freddie say. Before the MLS Cup, somebody asked him, you know, he was just warming up and he said, I just want to play football. I just want to play soccer. This is my way of playing, you know, and that was wrong. And I said to him many times, Freddie, I just want to play. What does this mean? You want to, okay, if you want to start and say, I want to start the game. If you want to just play to play, it's not going to work. You're not going to fit in the system if you just want to play your game. Your game is in training, maybe, or 2v2 or 1v1. But your game shouldn't be the main factor how the team performs. I remember being in L.A. and sitting down to interview Adu and Novak in the days before the final. The coach and the player had a perception gap about Freddie's performance. Novak saw a 15-year-old whom he relied on as a sub in every game, whom he trusted with taking a pressure-packed penalty to get to the final. But Adu just saw that he wasn't starting games. And when you're in an ad with Pelé, that wasn't good enough for Freddie. The expectations had been set too high. And that perception gap between Freddie and the club would only corrode further in the months and years to come. With Adu sitting on the bench, DC United fell behind in the sixth minute on a Kansas City laser strike. Borciaga lets it go from distance. Borciaga scores. Beating Romano from downtown. Then Aleko Eskandarian took over. He scored twice in just four minutes. The first on a quick move just inside the penalty box. On the turn. The second on a steal and score off an uncalled handball that left him alone in on goal. And that was it there for Escondarian. He's got two. A Kansas City own goal made it 3-1 DC, and United had turned a one-goal deficit into a two-goal lead in just seven electric minutes. Early in the second half, a Dima Kovalenko handball resulted in a red card and penalty, and KC converted from the spot. 3-2 DC. Then, it was Freddie Adu time. There he is. 
he's ready to go. We have Peter Novak mic'd up. I wonder what he said to Freddie. We're going to play 3-5-1. We're still going to be in the middle, but behind Jaime. Okay. All right? Leave it Jaime up front. Okay? And go left to right. Okay. In between them. All right? Okay. All right? That's when the match got a little crazy. Kansas City had chances, which is what you'd expect when a team plays more than 30 minutes with a man advantage. But United held firm. Freddie had a couple darting runs with the ball. And when the final whistle blew, Freddie once again flashed that smile. So did all of his teammates. That's it. That's it. DC United are champions again for the fourth time. In the postgame celebration, Freddie worked his way to touch the Allen Rothenberg Championship trophy, helping team captain Ryan Nelson lift it up at midfield. Mike Pecky remembers seeing Freddie in his element. Freddie was like a, a pig in shit when, when he was lifting that trophy. We're looking at him and thinking and saying, you could probably have 12 more of these in the next 15, 20 years if you play your cards right. Freddie then made his way to the locker room, officially ending his rookie season with a cup. I still remember being in that locker room. Jaleel White, the former child television star Urkel from Family Matters, was there to support Freddie as a guest of Trevor Moad. And somehow Urkel and I got into it when he remembered I had sarcastically called him a Hollywood luminary in a column that year. But that's a story for another day. As for Freddie, he had finished his first season with a title. A season in which he'd had five goals and three assists, started 14 games, and played in all 34. A rookie season that would have made any player happy, including Ben Olsen. If he was a college kid turning pro and he had that type of impact on a team, he would probably be in the rookie of the year conversations. Five goals? How many? More than me. Probably that year. Some wonderful moments. And some some great goals, some fun interplay with players and some lovely service to, I think, probably created some great goals too. But yeah, it was a good year. The season may not have gone the way Freddie had planned as far as playing time. He didn't have a hat trick in every game. He didn't lead the league in goals. He wasn't the MVP. But the thing about Freddie was he was still a teenager playing against professional men and playing pretty well too. He still seemed to be on a path to superstardom at the club and international levels. A 14-year-old that did what he did in games? I mean, it was amazing. Ernie Stewart. When you look around the world, there are no 14-year-olds playing at the highest level. The way I viewed it was any minute that he gets in a MLS game at that moment is a plus. MLS had gotten his attention boost. DC United had gotten its star in the making the fans had gotten glimpses of a player who could potentially end up doing things no American footballer had ever done before. But as the cameras rolled in the victorious locker room and Freddie was doused in a champagne shower he couldn't drink, he still felt like he hadn't done enough. I'm the type of player that if I'm starting and if I have that responsibility, You'll get more out of me than if you bring me off the bench or if I'm in one game in, one game out, one game in one. My confidence level is just sky high if I am an integral part of a team, meaning a starter on the team. Although we won the MLS championship that year, which was fantastic, by the way. That was awesome. But I could have done more. I could have given more 
uh, in my first year for sure. As Trevor Moad made his way through the locker room celebration to greet him, Freddie made up his mind. Next year was going to be different. Which said something to me, that at a moment when Freddie could have been focused entirely on celebrating with his teammates, he was thinking about other things. I remember being with him in the locker room after the final, and he said, hey, I understand that it went like this this year, but I'm effing playing next year. I ain't sitting, I ain't doing this stuff anymore. Freddie clearly wanted to start. He wanted to make the 2006 U.S. World Cup team at 17 years old, the same age Pelé had been for his first World Cup. But the pressure, the expectations, the tension between his inner circle and DC United, they all had finally started to fade Freddie's smile. And in the coming months, that turmoil would continue to build. Eventually, Freddie wanted out. No matter how great your quote unquote your life is off the field, on the field, it wasn't. And I'll just be flat out honest, man. It wasn't all it was cracked up to be because behind the scenes, there was a lot going on that just kind of soured the whole experience. I asked to be traded from DC United just so I can get away from all of this. You know, it got, it got to that point. That's next time on American Prodigy. This Blue Wire podcast was hosted, reported, and co-written by me, Grant Wall. Harry Swartout produced and co-wrote the show. Reed Redmond and Jeffrey Besoy provided production assistance. Brian Decker scored the podcast and engineered the sound. John Yales and Peter Moses executive produced the show. If you liked American Prodigy, subscribe and give us a rating and a review. It helps the podcast get to more people. Or you can go all 2004 on us and simply tell a friend.